The child welfare system exists to keep children safe. What happens when better safe than sorry becomes more sorry than safe? Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. Guys, at, at, at this point, we have court order documents for Case. removal. Right. But see, that's what I'm saying. What were the grounds that they were... Oh, let him finish. He's not going to answer the question. So, again, uh, the show cause hearing is October 3rd. Um, your attorney will be present at that time, in which, at that point, um, he'll... What I'm grounds sure was this emergency uh, hearing? Uh, uh, again, sir, uh, the hearing is... I've, I've already explained the reason for the emergency. Well, I'm just no, asking again. The, no, 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 there's no safety because according to CPS okay. documentation, there has to be an immediate or imminent threat to their life for you to have an emergency hearing. Again, guys, I'm going to go back. We have an unexplained skull fracture to a five-month-old. One consistent injury, the other one is not. This is what we have from our child abuse uh, clinic team. And, right, and, and it's still consistent as to what they're saying. They, right, right, right. This is what you guys write. Have we consulted. But let me ask you a question though. If, it, okay, if there was an immediate threat, why did it take you 22 days to have a court emergency hearing? Well, sometimes the process is not as fast as we would like it to be. So, so you believe that, that my children are under... Why, were, why weren't we invited? Why weren't we notified that there was an emergency court hearing? Why About the emergency? Well, for, for one, the disgruntledness. This, this um, I, I figured it would be combative. I, This is Kat, and I am here with Jack, and today we are here to talk with Melissa Bright, who is a mom, an engineer, a business owner, an advocate, and a survivor, and she is here today with us with a story to tell. Welcome, Melissa. Hi, thanks for having me. We're so excited to meet you in the flesh. We have been talking about your story for what seems like ever. It's really helped form some of our thoughts about things that can be improved in the system. We are really thankful to have you here with us today. I wanted to start off digging in deep, asking you like a super serious question. I hope you don't feel too intimidated by this question, but I really would like to know what your favorite drink is at Starbucks. <laughs> um, it depends on the day, but I like the vanilla sweet 
sweet cream cold brew with sweet cream cold foam on top. Not the healthiest, but I can't make it at home. So I feel like it's a treat. If I'm feeling like an afternoon pick me up, I can't really do the caffeine. So I'll do a iced chai tea latte. I'm all about ice. I live in Texas. It's hot 12 months out of the year. So <laughs> we are ice chai fans. She's one of us. Yes. I understand. I'm gosh, only been in Texas driving through like for a very short amount of time. It is my understanding that it's much hotter than Florida. It is. Especially and you're in Houston. It is humid. It is muggy. Oh, you got the nice Texas. We live near the coast and it sounds nice, but it just means it's humid all the time. I was born in Waco, raised in Austin. So like, I get it. And I was in Waco before Waco was cool, y'all. There were no silos. It just sucked then. Nobody wanted to be in Waco then. <laughs> it was just like Branch Davidian Waco. I would love to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite mom hack? I just started potty training my three-year-old. My other two potty trained easily, flawlessly, in their own time, just overnight. It was unbelievable. Number three is just not the same. And so we did the trick where you put the pull-up over the training potty to have them go to the bathroom. And it feels like they are going um, in a pull-up. And my three-year-old has only gone number two in a pull-up training potty for a month. And we can't get her to go on the toilet. And I am so thankful for that mom hack because what would I have done? Like, what what would we have done? We, we just kept her in diapers until she was in college? I don't know. Maybe. Wow. I wish I'd known that seven years ago. But I will say the third child is like a different breed of animal different breed yes i don't think i ever had a third child i think i just went straight to four yeah i think you did but i think i think your only girl is like your third child's like is that what that's like yeah does she rule your house yes yep third child she says things to me like put down your phone (laughs) and that's not my child (laughs) mini jack gives the best side eye on the planet like she can look at someone and you can just watch their whole face melt. It's it's actually pretty epic. So yeah, I guess that's my third child. We found out about you through a story that just like rocked us both to our core. And I think the only person who can tell that story is you. And so can you start to tell us the story that brought you to us? In 2018, I was a new mom of two. I had a newly turned two-year-old and um, a five-month-old at this time. And I was just kind of starting to get the hang of it. You know, you get out of that newborn sleepy haze where you're just surviving all the time. You're starting to get on schedule and you're nursing better and things just start to click better as a family get into a new normal. Um, My daughter just turned two and that day we got a couple tickets to go see a movie. So I took my oldest to see a movie and it was like our first one-on-one bonding time. Anyway, we came home later that afternoon and I put all uh, both my kids in the front yard and we had a water sprinkler going in the driveway. Mason was in his bouncer where it just like jumps up and down and he was just jumping and going to town and had a little water spraying on him from time to time. And my two-year-old's running around and kind of just enjoying surviving, I guess, hot Houston summer. Mm-hmm. It was time to go in. It was about maybe about 4.30 or so in the afternoon. And I was, I took my son out of the bouncer and I had taken his shirt and bathing suit off and he was just in a diaper and I didn't want to set him on the hot concrete. So I sat him down in the like tailgating collapsible chair um, that one would take to a, any 
any sporting event or whatever. And I arms length away, turned slightly to take my bathing suit off my two-year-old so they could bathing suit could stay outside and I could take my dry kids inside. And the next thing I know, I hear a blood curdling scream and I turn around and Mason's on the floor. And when I looked down at him, the very first thing I saw was a giant hematoma on his head. It was just, uh, I'm sure most parents, you know, the kid get a hard bump and you see the bump come up and swelling around it and it freaks you out. Imagine that, but like, you know, five or six times the size. It was very, very large on the side of his head. I immediately picked him up. I feel like, you know, that mom gut, that fight or flight takes over and you, you just know, I, I, I didn't need to question or call somebody and ask if I should call a doctor or 911. I just knew. I looked for blood. I didn't see any. And I ran inside. I called my husband. I was on the phone with him for about seven seconds telling him, hey, I'm calling 911. An accident happened much more chaotic than that. It was not calm. I call 911. It's the first time I'd ever called 911 in my life for an actual emergency. I think I'd called it once or twice, you know, car stalled on the side of the road or whatever, but an actual emergency call 911. My husband was able to beat the ambulance home because the business that we owned was only about a mile or so from our house. The ambulance shows up and I am so thankful that he was stable because at the time, you know, I, I don't know. I just know it's serious. He was stable enough to take the time to get his car seat and put it in the ambulance. They let me go inside and change out of my bathing suit and we get in the car and they don't have to use sirens. Very thankful for that. Um, Mason starts to throw up um, signs of concussion, which I'm sure that they already knew that. But thankfully, he remained stable and they could take us to Texas Children's, which is about, I don't know, 35, 40 minutes from our house versus our local hospital. Um, you know, it wasn't high emergency, but it for sure needed to be seen by a doctor. And so they take us um, to Texas Children's. And when we walk in, the whole dynamic changes. They greet us at the door. I say greet us. They meet us at the door. A nurse, maybe a nurse or two. I don't know if the doctor was present or not. And they wheel Mason straight back for a CT. My husband and I were directed to like um, an emergency room or whatever, where we waited for him to come back from the CT. Nobody was telling us anything. We didn't know what was going on. We just knew that there was like maybe five or six people in this room, plus the EMTs. And we don't know what's going on, but by the base of multiple people in the room, it seemed super, super severe. And so we just kept asking what's going on, what's going on. Um, I had a girlfriend meet me at the hospital that night with my breast pump and a couple of things. Anyway, I had never, I had never smelled so bad ever. You know, I'd been in the hot, hot sun. I had been sweating outside. I had on a bathing suit top, a tank top over it with a jacket. And I had on my bathing suit bottoms under, uh, uh, under a pair of pajama pants. So it wasn't wet, but it, it, it certainly wasn't like comfortable or dressed to be anywhere except my home. Your daughter, like, did she stay home? Um, I, I am... Again, we were very fortunate at the time that our business was so close. And when my husband bolted out of there, my mom, who worked for my husband, also bolted out of there. So by the time the ambulance arrived, um, my mom was there. But I didn't remember it at the time. But after the fact, my mom told me, she's like, when I got there, Charlotte's just walking around naked. Like I literally stripped her out of her bathing suit in the driveway. She's already mostly potty trained by this point. And I, everything had happened. And so I didn't even have time to put clothes on my two-year-old. There's so much, like, I can't even imagine how you guys felt. 
So the EMTs got there. It's very obvious what's happened that you guys were playing in a sprinkler on the driveway. They could see all of that. I mean, obviously they pulled right up into the front yard, you know. Um, I don't know everything. My mom ended up cleaning up all of the stuff afterward, but I mean, they could see the jumper and the sprinkler and the chair and, you know, everything that I had said. And even when I was telling them what had happened, you know, I was pointing at the objects and what had happened and what have you. So yeah, things started to shift in the uh, emergency room. And in hindsight, I had never been in a traumatic situation before. And I guess my personality is, or especially in that fight or flight moment, if if I pretend everything is okay, everything's okay. So, you know, I was trying to be overly lighthearted. Like, um, I, I don't know. It wasn't, it, it was just the most weird situation. I felt like I was outside watching an episode of Grey's Anatomy. Uh, the nurse, I believe, in the emergency room is the one who contacted CPS. While we were waiting on the results from the CT, a social worker came in and asked if um, I could come down the hallway with her. And again, not even a clue in the world that anybody had called CPS, not a clue in the world that that even happens, not even anybody would even think that I had harmed my child. So when the social worker asked me to come down the hallway, um, I get into this room with her. And the first thing I said, like, it was quiet. Anyway, and I just remember looking at her and I was like, I, I, I am so thankful to just have a moment, you know, like everything has been extreme rush, extreme adrenaline up to this point. I hadn't even had a conversation with my husband yet. I mean, he had heard what I, you know, explained to the doctors and, you know, he was holding Mason when the EMT got there. So, you know, he witnessed like the last, what, three minutes, two or three minutes before the EMTs got there at all. And from the moment he fell to the moment EMT got there, it was maybe 10 minutes, I think, based on my phone calls. So everything just happened so fast. And so I hadn't even talked to him about it. And here I am in this quiet room. And I thought she was taking me out for, for my well-being, not for my son's well-being. And I was just grateful. I was like, thank you. I, I really needed a minute. I was feeling weak. I felt like I had low blood sugar. I don't know you know, that feeling where you just feel like you, you need to eat something or you're going to pass out. It's kind of how I felt. And I, I don't do adrenaline at all. I'm not a thrill seeker. So uh, it was my body, my body's response to the adrenaline, I guess. And so it was nice to have a moment, you know, and she asked me the same questions that the nurses had asked me. It wasn't anything that felt more invasive or less invasive. I thought they needed as much information as possible so they could best treat Mason. And so I tried to explain it in as much detail and clarity as I could. Well, based on his injuries, he had a subdural hematoma and, you know, the large fracture on his skull. And so based on his hematoma, they had to transfer him down to the med center, Texas Children's in the med center, because um, he would need his primary physician to be a neurosurgeon. So we were transported via ambulance from the Woodlands, which is about an hour north or so of Houston, down to the med center, which is center of Houston. When we got there, I mean, it was insane. It was truly an episode of Grey's Anatomy or Golly, what are the other med shows? There's an episode, I don't know what season it is, but there's an episode where um, 
Alex Karev. He's like, I guess the doctor or resident or I don't know what season, but it is truly what I experienced where there's a mom who they were saying shook their baby, blah, blah, blah. But Alex Karev came down to the bottom of it and there was a medical diagnosis, da, 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 da. And anyway, just wait till you get to it. You'll really, really have some PTSD. Anyway, so I get to the hospital and it, it is everything like we we get there and the doctors come out to receive Mason. And there is like there's no less than 10 or 12 medical professionals in this trauma room. Everybody just like going around in a hustle and a bustle trying to assess Mason. And I'm sitting there like we were literally just in this ambulance and I'm staring at those machines in the ambulance and it is completely stable. And now I come in here and it looks like you're going to rush him back to the OR and nobody's saying anything to me. I don't know who these people are who are treating my kid. And even if they told me their name, no way I was going to remember any of that anyway. And I mean, like literally like prying his eyes open, looking at him, poking, prodding, getting, you know, these results, that results, I must have told my story to 10 different people. And I don't know if I was telling it to the same person 10 times. It was so much chaos and so much going around. And my husband wasn't there yet, because if you know anything about the med center in Houston, you have to park a hundred million miles away and pay a million dollars just to get to the hospital. And then you have to walk. So I'm sitting there all by myself. And eventually I look at somebody and I said, I, I have got to have a chair. Like I was like, Either you're going to need to put me in a bed next to Mason or you're going to need to get me a chair so I can sit down. And again, I have no idea what's going on. I just know it went from zero, which really wasn't zero, but at least stable to completely insane in the matter of seconds. They do their thing. They take them back, I guess, for more scans. They stick on this neck brace onto our kid. Don't know why there's a neck brace on. Nobody's updated me about anything. Then they just kind of all leave and put us in an, an ER room. About 10 minutes or so of being in the ER room alone with my husband and my son, no doctors around, you know, waiting for, I guess, a room to open, an update from somebody from somewhere. Um, this woman comes in. I don't I don't know if she was a social worker. Maybe you'll know more about it than I do. But essentially, she just needed to be in the room because we weren't allowed to be in the room alone with our son. But again, nobody told us that. So I just thought it was this woman in here who was going to help out in case something happened. And so I was like hyper anxious thinking, OK, if they had to have a woman sit here and watch him and his stats aren't sufficient enough to watch. Like what's about to happen to my kid? You know, she literally sat in a chair on the other side of Mason's bed and just stared at him, just stared at him. I thought she was watching him breathe. And I kept looking at his chest. Is he breathing? Like what's going on? Finally, 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 we get an update. And essentially the update was, hey, we're going to go ahead and admit you. Same thing that the Woodlands location told us. Mason has a fracture and he has some bleeding. And and this is when it gets, I guess, should have raised red flags. Like some people were telling us one thing. Some people were telling us another thing. None of it was really cohesive. I don't know who his actual doctor is at this point. I don't know if they're residents or nurse practitioners or I have no idea who's even coming in, giving us updates on our kid because nobody really is forthcoming with information. So we finally about midnight or so get up to our room and they allow my husband and I again to stay. We're we're completely naive at this point. We just think that everything has happened as per usual. My husband was able to fall asleep and I was finally able to process the day. I don't know, it felt like for the first time all day I could let go of my 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 fight, you know, the fight or flight kind of just crash and don't know what's up with my kid. I do know he had a concussion. So the next morning they take us in for an MRI. 
to check his neck because he has that neck brace on. So we don't know what's even going on with his neck. And I'm sitting there like trying to think about how his neck was injured. I'm like, that just doesn't make sense. And that afternoon, the next day after his MRI, we finally get a first doctor to come in and speak to us. And he said, my name is Dr. So-and-so and I am part of the CAP team is what they called it. No idea what that was. They went on to explain that that's child abuse pediatrics. And when he came to talk to us, it was him and another doctor and a nurse and a social worker. So there were four people that were part of this team that came to explain Mason's results to us, not as neurosurgeon, not his, I don't know who else would have come, but not as neurosurgeon. At this point, I didn't even, I didn't even know who they were. Mason, thankfully, you know, was in no condition to have to have some type of emergency surgery or anything completely stable on a normal floor. We're not in like ICU or anything. They're essentially just watching him because of his concussion. They have to make sure that things progress in the right direction. He's essentially just under observation. Well, they come in and talk to us and essentially tell us, you know, all of Mason's injuries. And, and I was like, okay, well, you know, those are his injuries. What does that mean? And without so much as directly pointing it to us, they, they were very judicial with their words. They were like, um, we would usually see this type of injury in a child who has been in a serious car accident or was physically abused. And I was like, OK, well, he wasn't in either of those things. So why did this happen to my kid? You know, like what's going on? And they they just kind of like diverted the question without telling me, hey, we think since you weren't in a serious accident that you abused your child. They told us that the next part of the process, again, making it seem just so natural, like, hey, this is what we do for every kid who comes in. Um, we're going to have CPS come up and talk to you. And my husband and I were like, well, why do we why do we have to do this? But again, we told the doctors, OK, whatever you need in order to best treat our child will do whatever it is. So um, that night we had a caseworker and a special investigator from the Department of Family and Protective Services come up and speak with us. And they split my husband and I up. I'm in one room and my husband's in another. And essentially they each talk to us and then they switch and they ask us the same things again, I guess, to make sure that stories are consistent. This is, I think, what's the hardest part of it all is they were genuinely nice. Like it felt, I mean, it was a sucky day. I finally showered like Praise the good Lord, put on actual underwear and not a bathing suit bottom um, to the basics in life. And I mean, it was just, I, would, I hadn't slept at all. I had a giant headache. You know, I had up and left my two year old who'd never other than the night I was in the hospital having Mason spent away from us. They were there and they were like genuinely nice. They were like, OK, and how did that happen? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And they were trying to get a history of who we were and our marriage. And they started to ask my husband some questions, which to him raised a red flag. But even to me, I was still sitting there naive. Melissa, I guess I just benefit of the doubt or, you know, like Jack said earlier, we had talked personally about, hey, there are kids that are abused. So this is the process. We got to go through it to make sure that those kids are protected. 
So I went through the process and it just felt so, so natural to talk to these men. You had mentioned on the Do No Harm podcast, which is where we originally heard about your story, that your impression and like kind of your approach to things in life, especially something as important as this, is just be honest and things will always work out, right? Um, like you obviously did not intentionally hurt your child. You didn't do anything that every other parent doesn't do, like you know, numerous times, you just felt like being honest is how they're going to help your kid. It's how they're going to see that you were doing everything you could. Right. And that this was just an accident. And I think a lot of us think that that is the approach to use. You know, that's what we're told, like, be honest, be honest about everything. But in your situation, it seems like your honesty was used against you. This is my hindsight because hindsight's 2020, right? There is a large disconnect between these child abuse pediatricians and CPS. On one hand, you have these child abuse pediatricians who will tell you time and again, they do not work for CPS. They're employed by the hospital. And I'm, I probably was told that three or four times by different persons of the team. It makes you wonder in hindsight, okay, well, where does their liability lie? To the patient or to the hospital? Right. And so since they're not caseworkers and that's not their job, they have no real reason to not be overly conservative. Right. They don't want to send a child that could potentially have been abused back into an abusive situation. So it's better and easier to err on the side of caution. That's one side. Then the other side is CPS was like undereducated, overworked overcommitted, no idea what's going on. And they see the letters MD and child abuse pediatrician after these accusations. And they're like, oh my gosh, they say it's abuse. It is abuse, abuse, abuse. There is no even reason to investigate this. My job is done. Case closed, you know, and they, and, and it's like they have these blinders on and don't even speak to one another. And I can say that with certainty because our caseworker never spoke to one of Mason's doctors. I signed over every single HIPAA, everything for myself, for my husband, for my daughter, for my son, everybody. They could access everything from our entire lives. And they never even spoke to a doctor. They simply had a singular piece of paper that said it was suspect for abuse. And they took that as judge, jury, executioner, it's abuse, no even need to proceed down this road. And so I feel like there's that huge giant disconnect between child abuse pediatricians, their relationship to the hospital and CPS workers. And there's no, there's no even way to possibly have any sort of um, enforcement over that. Like you can't punish these doctors. Like there's no checks and balances. No checks and balances. You can't punish these doctors for being overly conservative, right? Anyway, so later that night, they went um, to our house. My husband and I were still at the hospital. My mom was home with my two-year-old. And they're like, yeah, we're going to go see your home and your two-year-old and all this stuff. And we're like, that feels very invasive for us not being present, you know. Um, not that we had anything to hide, but you're like, all of a sudden, okay, well, like, how are they going to interpret these things? What is that going to mean? And and I was so fortunate to have a team of people that I didn't even know I had in my life that were so pivotal to every part of this story. All I knew in that moment was, hey, there needs to be somebody else there. I'm not going to put that all on my mom. And so I call my neighbor. She lived, um, I don't know, like a street or two over from us. She worked as a Harris County Sheriff, Sheriff's Department. And I was like, you know, at least at the end of the day, 
She is a neutral third party. She has, you know, the resume, I guess, if you will, to be a person of, of neutral interest. And I felt like the special investigator would have respect that. And she could have at least been there to protect our, our basic rights. We didn't even know what we we're doing. Like, uh, sure, go to our house and check out our two year old and look at all of our stuff, whatever. You know, we're not leaving the hospital. We have a kid here who's injured, sick. We don't know what's going to go on with him. So we're not leaving. But, um, you know, we were just overly yes people. Didn't call an attorney or anything like that. We were just like, yeah, sure. So thankfully, we had people in our, our corner to help represent us when we couldn't represent ourselves. So the, uh, that's CPS wise. The next day or maybe the day after we get a call from CPS stating that they have to proceed with an investigation. My daughter cannot stay in our home, even though we were at the hospital. And so um, we had to pack up my two-year-old while in the hospital. We had to call family and friends to go to our house and literally like disassemble her crib, get clothes, diapers, whatever else she may have needed, pajamas, whatever, and drive her about an hour and a half to my in-laws who lived um, on the other side of Houston. According to CPS, not only were we not appropriate enough to raise our child and determine who could watch them, they have to determine who can watch them and where she can be watched. And so we were like, okay, this must just be part of the process Whatever you say, we'll do. So that's what we did. I'm thankful that my daughter could go with my in-laws. You know, it's still hard transition for her, especially never being out of her own room. But she's there. Mason is still being observed. He was observed probably like seven days before he ended up needing to have a burr hole and an EVD drain put in because the size of his subdural hematoma should have been reabsorbed had he not had underlying conditions, which we then later found out about. But at the time, it should have been reabsorbed and the subdural space should have closed down on its own. But Mason, it didn't. He kept bleeding. CSF was building up in the space. And so because so, they had to relieve that pressure. During all of this time, our week of waiting for that, Mason was seen by an ophthalmologist, a hematologist, I don't know. He, he had multiple scans done. They did a full body x-ray of Mason head to toe. Um, that was pretty excruciating. Uh, they do not sedate you for those. And so there's like grown adults holding your children down so they can get a full body x-ray, even though he didn't actually need one. They were checking for previously healed fractures or other fractures current on his body. We had to bring in my perfectly healthy two-year-old who had never taken anything outside of Tylenol in all of her days in for a full body x-ray head to toe. Anyway, we did everything CPS requested. We brought him in. We did all of the things that we felt were entirely unnecessary, not just unnecessary, like traumatic for these kids that they just didn't need to have. But we did it anyway. Not just traumatic in and of themselves, but this traumatic thing had just happened in your family, which if CPI never got involved in, would still have been a trauma for your family. Right. Yeah. What your son went through, what your daughter watched this happen. And I... I probably have had accidents a lot like this. You know what I mean? But as we'll talk about later, I think we found out that your son's underlying condition is what exacerbated this. 
But I think we've all had moments where like if we've had wild children at all, where we're like, oh my gosh, are they going to be okay? Right. And the amount of anguish that you experience that your kids feel off of that is traumatizing. So just what you went through was traumatizing. Having to go through the hospital experience was traumatizing. Your daughter having to move to your in-laws was traumatizing. Being away from you while you were at the hospital, even if she didn't have to leave her home, would have been traumatizing. And then on top of it, to be examining them with all these additional x-rays, like they were looking for a needle in a haystack and not looking at what the most logical answer was, which was that it was just an accident. Yeah. You know how they say innocence until proven guilty. Not in child welfare. I feel like we were guilty and they were trying to prove our guilt. I'll get to that later on. But I remember our caseworker stating at one point, we have all the information we need. We were trying to give him some information that we had found out on an underlying medical condition from Mason. We were at a family team meeting and we were trying to hand that to him. Hey, you need to call this doctor. Hey, this is what we found out. Hey, this explains the bleeding and all of this stuff. And he said, we have all the information we need. And we're like, no, if you don't have all the information, then you don't have all the information you need. Right. What he, what he was really saying was that he had all the information that he needed to prove what he wanted to prove. Exactly. Not to find the truth. Exactly. I'm not like some goody two-shoe or anything like that. I've made life mistakes and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, I have never had a speeding ticket. I have never been arrested or involved the only time i've ever gone to the police station was my car not even me my car was involved in an accident in a parking lot so like i had to go and google where the police station was to even go get a police report so it's one of those situations that my extent of government is like 12th grade government class to graduate high school, you know, all this happy-go-lucky idealism. Not anymore. Can you tell us what the medical condition was? 27 hours before his blood blood results from the hematologist had come back, the child abuse pediatrics team filed a report to CPS stating that they believed that Mason was abused. Just point blank. It was literally a one question. Um, do you believe these injuries are due to abuse? And they literally had a yes or no they could circle. Not even like a percentage probability or a statistic rating. Literally, they had to choose from yes or no. And so they circled the word yes. That was that was the extent of of, of my, I don't know, innocence there. And so um, 27 hours later, and we didn't find this out till later when we were obviously looking through documents, we got some results back from Mason's blood test and it stated that he had what they call von Willebrand's disease. There's like four or five different factors that go into diagnosing it, but one of them being your von Willebrand factor. And there are different levels. A normal person should have like whatever this unit is, a factor of like 53 or above to have a sufficient amount of protein to clot appropriately in a, in a situation like this in which bleeding occurs or bleeding occurs more easily to clot. Well, Mason was in the low, low 30s. I think it was like 29 or 30 was the, the, that factor. So he had some, but it wasn't working as effectively as it ought to have worked, his, like his clotting ability in his body. That was the justification as to why he bled easily. And then he bled more than he should have from a shortfall. 
Well, the child abuse team never sent that information over. It's like their report was done. They didn't have to send anything over. So we provided that to CPS and they didn't see that was necessary to, I don't know, reach out and contact that doctor. In fact, I think the caseworker was on the stand and he said, we we asked about that. And what he meant was he asked the social worker about Mason's blood clotting disorder and how that played into effect on their diagnosis of abuse or not. He didn't ask a doctor or a nurse or anybody in the medical field. He asked the social worker if it changed their report any, and essentially the social worker said no. So we had this, which was what caused him to bleed so easily in the subdural space. They call it like a shearing force, which is why the the old term shaken baby came from for the subdural hematoma, where you have to shear these blood vessels between the brain and the skull in order for the bleeding to occur in the subdural space, which is why they said car accident because of the, the forces, the back and forth forces, or they don't call it shaken baby anymore. They call it non-accidental head trauma. So that's essentially what they were accusing us of. Well, we found out Later, because all of this happened so quickly, we weren't able to get in and see other doctors and stuff right away. But after the fact, we found out that Mason had benign external hydrocephalus. He had subdural fluid that was between his brain and skull and his head was like ginormous. Well, oftentimes it's considered benign because the kids have, you know, three different plates and they haven't fused yet and and it's not rigid. So they have more ability to expand. Mason had a huge, huge head. Um, I think at four months he was already measuring in like the 101 percentile for head circumference. That based on a couple of other things as his medical scenario went on. He was later diagnosed with that. So the subdural space was already open. He didn't have to have extreme trauma to his head to shear those blood vessels. That coupled with the fact that he bled easily or more easily and didn't clot as quickly is more than enough justification to explain why he had the injury he had from such a shortfall. I'm no doctor. So if somebody is listening to this and I got something wrong, please educate me. Um, I just can't remember as a mom what I took in. So at this point, we had already signed this, you know, waiver where we were not in our home. My in-laws had primary care over both of my kids. I wasn't allowed to stay over at their house, you know, like we were already in this place and they had like what, 60 days or 90 days. I don't know what the policy is. To, to actually sit down and do that. There was no rush. Like they didn't have to, in a matter of 24 hours, decide one thing or another. They had time. You know, we didn't, we weren't even discharged from the hospital for the first time. I think it was like 10 days we were in the hospital the first time. It's not like we were being discharged the next day and he might go back to an abusive family. I mean, there was time, but nobody invested that time into his specific case and his specific needs. About after 10 days... He's ready to be discharged from the hospital. What happens now? We go to my in-laws. At this point, they could not discharge him into our custody. Um, they were still investigating us. So it's called um, a safety child placement, parent child placement or something like that. Essentially, it's not we're not giving up custody. We still have custody of our kids. However, at this point, we're voluntarily stating that we will allow my in-laws to primarily care for our children. Because I was what they call the alleged perpetrator, I had certain guidelines I had to follow. Like I couldn't 
go. I couldn't drive my kids anywhere. If we went anywhere, my my mother-in-law had to, if I was at the house, I had to be seen by my mother-in-law at all times. I couldn't just go and bathe my kids on my own or that sort of thing. I was only allowed at her house from 6 a.m. to, I don't, I don't know, I think it was 9 or 10 p.m., you know, so I could get there in the morning and nurse, and Mason's still nursing at this point. And because he was in the hospital on and off until almost seven months old, he, he didn't really even start solids until, uh, you know, most kids start solids, what, about six months? I think it was about seven months, right at seven months when he started solids. So he, at this point, was still only on breast milk. I'd get there in the morning to nurse, and then I was able to put them down. And um, I was trying to, despite all the stress, pump enough in the day so that my mother-in-law had access to milk at night. I'm not allowed to sleep at my in-law's house. My in-laws live an hour away from us. And so I am very thankful for the kindness of people in the area and their friends. But I was literally at random people's houses sleeping in the evenings. My husband had to go back to work. So he was on the other side, never saw our kids. And it was just like, la la la. It felt like our life was on pause. Like we had to just push pause until CPS could get through their investigation. Hold on to your seats. This story is just getting started. Tune back in next week to hear more about Mason's story and what happens when child welfare is more sorry than safe. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.